Hey guys, I'm Raf. And I'm James. On today's episode, The Psychiatrist's Guide to Ketamine. March 5th, 2019, the Food and Drug Administration approved esketamine, a nasal spray for the treatment of depression. What? What's esketamine? I, it's a drug of abuse, <sighs> as far as I know. And they right. use it for and they use it for surgeries. So how yeah, could they possibly use it for anything else? Well, let's find out. Esketamine is an enantiomer of ketamine. What the what does that mean? You're just you're just going crazy with the terminology today. So, go ahead, you explain it. <laughs> <laughs> so, an enantiomer is when, so chemicals can have, a lot of chemicals, depending on the chemical structure, can have two different forms. It's like right. your hands. If you hold your hands out in front of you, they look kind of the same, but there's actually no way to superimpose your right hand onto your left hand. There's no way. It just would not fit. It wouldn't right. fit perfectly. Mirror images of each other. Exactly. You can't just superimpose one on the other, no matter what you do to it, and make it look the same. And that's right. the same idea with enantiomers. There's usually right. two types of enantiomers. There's an S and an R. And it just mm -hmm. has to do with which way the part of the chemical which makes it almost handed, like we just talked about, right? which way that part of the chemical is, is turned, is facing. And so this happens to be the S enantiomer. So this is the S enantiomer of ketamine. Sometimes with enantiomers, one of the two compounds is like the active one and the other one doesn't do much. And so sometimes they make drugs that are just one of the two. Some people think it's like a ploy, like a marketing ploy, that they they believe that they both could work. And in order to get a patent, they'll like patent one of the two. Well, according to the research that I was reading earlier today, they, they both do have an effect with regard to, you know, depression, which we'll talk about in a sec, but mm -hmm. the S enantiomer and the R enantiomer have different effects with regards to depression. Okay. Yeah. So the FDA just recently approved S-ketamine, which is the S enantiomer of ketamine, in a nasal spray form for treatment-resistant depression. And the reason why it's a nasal spray is because, and I asked our the chair of our program, this Dr. Lagunas, mm -hmm. the reason why it's a nasal spray is because ketamine has a very low bioavailability if you take it by mouth. And that, that just means that if you take it by mouth and you can, if it were a pill, you'd have to take a big pill because mm -hmm. not so much of it would get in your bloodstream. Whereas if it's a nasal spray, it goes in right into the bloodstream, right into the bloodstream, blood vessels in the nose. Also allows it to act quicker. Right. It's already okay. a quick acting drug. All right. Yeah. Because the, the other route that's been studied is IV. Yes, exactly. And that's what they use. Intravenous, but it's kind of impractical, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, what uh, psychiatrist's office is going to set up, uh, you know, right. have you sit there for a couple hours with an IV line, much easier to have you come in, have you, you self-administer the spray, 
So the patients, uh, they spray it themselves and then Mm -hmm. they have to be monitored for two to three hours. I think it's two hours. Yeah. Two hours. Two Mm -hmm. hours. After two hours, you can, you can go home, but especially if it's your first time using it, you shouldn't, you know, drive or operate heavy machinery or, or do Kung Fu or I don't know, practice with your katana or your nunchucks. So I think there's two big questions to to start with. Mm -hmm. One is... Why did the FDA approve ketamine for depression? Mm-hmm. In other words, why do we need ketamine for depression? And the other big question is, why is it scary? Why is it a big deal? I just made two excellent jokes about nunchucks and katanas, and it oh. just got nothing out of you. Just nothing. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, wow. Wow. I, I laughed internally. <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I'm so used to the jokes that I just move on. <laughs> yeah, they just the roll punches. off you. Exactly. So the first question... Why is this important? Why is this needed? I mm-hmm. think ketamine is filling an important gap that's left by the current tools we have in our tool belt. And if you look at what we have in our tool belt for depression, we have antidepressants that work in various ways. Maybe mm-hmm. we should just do an episode on like what actually antidepressants are and how they work and why they're different, why different ones work for different people. Right. So we have antidepressants. We have ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, like you Mm -hmm. saw in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where you are put under in an operating room. You have an anesthetist there and a psychiatrist there, and then your brain is shocked with electricity. does work for depression, works very well, but it's a big Mm -hmm. to-do. And then we have transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is almost like diet ECT. Right. And that is, uh, you know, but that has its own restrictions. It takes an hour. You have to do it five days a week for six weeks. It's a big expense. You have to have the time to come in. You have to find a psychiatrist to do it. There are side effects. So I think what ketamine can do and what ketamine is being compared to in the literature is almost like ECT or maybe TMS, but with less of a stigma, Mm -hmm. quicker onset, and it can help people pretty quickly Right. If their if their uh, doctor has tried and two different antidepressants and neither is working. Right. So the promise of ketamine in this case mm-hmm. is fast and effective treatment for depression. Exactly. Because if, they, but it can't be. Can it be the first treatment? Not currently. So it's only okay. FDA approved for treatment resistant depression. Mm-hmm. So you have to have you, you have to be qualified as tre- treatment resistant, which usually means failing at least two antidepressant trials, like. At full doses for a full course of time mm-hmm. and in conjunction with an antidepressant. So we're not going to be gotcha. treating anybody with ketamine alone, at least it, not if you're doing it the way it's approved. You so know? so you take the you take the antidepressant with the yeah, ketamine. Yeah, so you would yeah. take, exactly. And, and the promise of ketamine is that it fills a void in the sense that antidepressants, we know, usually take four to six weeks to really start to kick in, mm-hmm. you know, to take, to take full effect. Whereas, as we'll talk more about the research with ketamine, we're talking about one day. Yeah, which is pretty exciting. Right. But there are risks. Right. So that's the second question is why is this scary? You know, why is Mm -hmm. this a big deal? Yeah. And I think the first thing we have to recognize is what ketamine is. It's a derivative of PCP Mm -hmm. or also known as angel dust, which is a significant drug of abuse. And the effects of ketamine at certain doses... And even at therapeutic doses, have very much the same effects that PCP does. Yeah. And when you first hear that, especially for us as psychiatrists, that can be really scary because one thing that we do is we work in the emergency room 
Right. And you and I have both seen patients who come in intoxicated on PCP. All the time. And they are angry, assaultive, potentially. They want to fight. They always want to fight. They're cursing, yelling, no insight into what is going on. Right. The drug usually leaves the system in 24 hours, like we said, fast onset. And, mm. uh, you know, when that 24-hour period passes, these people then become so apologetic. Like, I can't believe I, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. That's not me. You know, so to hear that it's a derivative of PCP, you're right, is, is pretty scary. We have kind of two diametrically opposed things in the sense. Mm-hmm. We have what could potentially be a holy grail for depression, you know, a yeah. promising treatment that could reverse depression in one day. Mm-hmm. And we have a dangerous drug of abuse that causes hallucinations, that causes people to try to commit suicide, to do all sorts of wild things. Mm-hmm. So let's dig a little deeper and see how we can reconcile those two things. Yeah. How does this work? What receptor does this work on? So ketamine works as an NMDA receptor antagonist. Okay. So the NMDA receptor is typically activated by a neurotransmitter called glutamate. Also, when a molecule called glycine or another amino acid is bound to it. Mm-hmm. Um, glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So the NMDA receptor when it's activated, it has several functions. I guess it's it's easiest to talk about this this pathway in discussing how ketamine works. Okay. Right? So what's ketamine's main use medically? Anesthesia. Ketamine is known as a dissociative anesthetic. Anesthesia meaning that it reduces pain. Mm-hmm. So it's used to, to prevent pain, usually in the preoperative setting. So if you're going to send somebody to surgery. And... The word dissociative can be defined as blocking the brain's ability to create memories. Mm -hmm. That's one kind of narrow definition of dissociation. Yeah, which is something that surgeons strive for and anesthesiologists strive for. You know, God forbid you wake up in the surgery during the surgery because the maybe the analgesic effect is still high. But but Mm -hmm. you even if someone wakes up, they won't necessarily be in pain, but you don't want them to remember waking up. So you need to have that effect as well. So it's potentially beneficial, yeah. In that in that setting, you, sure. You you stop somebody from remembering from from having the consciousness to know what's going on, and mm-hmm. you stop the pain both at the same time. Yep. There are some qualities kind of particular to ketamine as an anesthetic. One mm-hmm. is that it doesn't cause a significant drop in blood pressure usually, the way other uh, pain medications do. Mm-hmm. And that can be useful in certain situations, like somebody who's suffered a major trauma, let's say, and maybe losing blood and is at sure. risk of having low blood pressure but needs significant pain relief. Mm-hmm. It could be useful in that setting. Let's talk about another effect that the NMDA receptor has in the human body. There's a phenomenon called excitotoxicity. I'm going to explain to you what excitotoxicity is. All right. Go okay. Ahead. Excitotoxicity is a term that's thrown around in medicine all the time. It basically means when there's too much of something in a system. In this case, we're talking about too much uh, glutamate and glycine in the brain, too much. The NMDA receptors are way overstimulated because there's just so much of it. And that can lead to all sorts of downstream effects that we see plenty of times in other diseases, actually. Uh, One of the first things that I think most people will know about is MSG or monosodium glutamate, or that thing that you fear when you get Chinese food. Um, So... MSG is a food additive. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it supposedly gives food something called umami. Umami? Yeah, which some people believe is like an extra kind of taste. I do. Separate from like sweet and sour. 
it's, it's like the savory taste. Yeah, the savory, meaty taste. Right. So it's added to a, a, a ton of food. Yes. Um, most notoriously, Asian food, especially like American Chinese food. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some research that has shown in the past that MSG in studies with animals can cause excitotoxicity, meaning the neurons get so activated because MSG is like is glutamate, right? So it mm-hmm. activates the NMDA receptor. And there's research in animals to show that at certain levels, too much MSG can activate those neurons so much that it damages the neurons and they start to die, essentially. Enough to make you fear going to right. your local Chinese place. There is something in medicine, I guess you could call it a diagnosis, called MSG symptom complex. And that's how we... Basically, it's, it's like how medicine responded to these reports of people having side effects from consuming too much MSG. Mm-hmm. I'll point out that some of the things I looked at suggested that this was kind of racial in nature. Interesting. It, yeah, that that xenophobia led to kind of like a craze of saying that Chinese food causes these kind of symptoms. Wow. So, yeah, something we have to keep an open mind to. Doesn't surprise me, to be honest. Yeah. But, I mean, it's surprising to learn, but that really Right, yeah, I had never heard me. that before. Yeah. But appa- apparently it's part of the reason that it's been overblown is because, you know, people like to racially fan the flames. Now I feel like a jerk. You are. Uh, I'm going to go eat at my Chinese place after this just I to make Chinese up for food. it. I mean, <laughs> too, man. There's okay. too many great places in, uh, in Jersey. Well, the good news is this. Uh-huh. We, the medical community has tried to um, replicate those studies in humans, mm-hmm. and we haven't found that at the levels that we find MSG in foods, you know, we, we haven't been able to replicate those side effects that people had reported getting from consuming MSG. And for that reason, MSG is still found in tons of foods. Got it. So another place where excitotoxicity um, gets talked about a lot is in Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is, of course, uh, the disease that affects millions and millions of people in this country every every year. It's essentially dementia that progresses. Uh, you lose your most recent memories first, and it, as it progresses, you have memory loss that extends more and more into your life. And by the end, you have you know difficulties taking care of yourself. And it unfortunately usually is a a fatal disease in the sense that you will die with this disease. And I think that it's commonly bandied about that after the onset of alzheimer's typical alzheimer's you have about seven years and it has like a a long prodrome that's like 20 years so it's Mm -hmm. something that kind of creeps up on you people don't really notice it right away until it really starts to have a major impact on their life Mm -hmm. but how can how does glutamate and the nmda receptor what does that have to do with alzheimer's disease the pathophysiology includes the buildup of what are called beta amyloid plaques which we've talked about kind of earlier in a different episode when we talked about um, prions. Basically, buildup of bad stuff in your brain. Yeah, buildup of misfolded proteins that Mm -hmm. create all sorts of havoc. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that they do is they enhance NMDA receptor activity, or in other words, they enhance the sensitivity of the NMDA receptor to glutamate. And basically, what it amounts to is more glutamate being around than it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And causing excitotoxicity like we talked about too much stimulation of the neurons to the point where they start to get damaged all that glutamate needs to get cleaned up by a certain type of cell called an astrocyte having that process go on in the brain is not good it can lead to cell death so on and Mm -hmm. so forth 
Exactly. And then leads to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. which is why one of the major treatments for Alzheimer's disease is a medication called memantine, mm-hmm. which just like ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. I was actually reading earlier today about why, if we're now using NMDA receptor antagonists to treat depression, why wasn't memantine used to treat depression? And it just goes along with our earlier discussion about the S and R enantiomers of a drug and how a small change can have a big difference. Right. Yes, memantine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. No, it doesn't address depression pretty it much does at not. all. Yeah. Right. And I think we'll talk about it a little more later, but they've done studies to see if it does and it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't work. Otherwise, we'd be using it because it's a medication that's very commonly used given mm-hmm. the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, when we treat uh, people intoxicated with PCP in the emergency room, in addition to being really angry and irritable and trying to start fights, they are also, in many cases, psychotic, which is just to say that they are hearing or seeing things that aren't necessarily there, or they're acting on assumptions which aren't based in reality. And it's been shown that PCP can cause a syndrome indistinguishable from schizophrenia because schizophrenia is a disease that's typified by what i just said hallucinations right. delusions and uh chronic these... psychosis and and schizophrenia in addition to having those things which are the positive symptoms of schizophrenia it, it's a disease that also has what are called negative symptoms like social withdrawal blunted affect a motivation yeah exactly and pcp can cause both the positive and negative symptoms that you see in schizophrenia. Which is why I think a lot of times when, you know, people talk about ketamine as use for depression, you know, a lot of times providers are a little bit scared because they know right. that it has these very significant potential side effects. Right. And there's actually been research showing that ketamine can do exactly the same thing. Ketamine can cause a syndrome indistinguishable from schizophrenia. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Scary stuff. Right. So we got to be careful. Yeah. Another example of the NMDA, blocking the NMDA receptor causing psychosis is anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Oh, I've treated a case of that with the neuro team at UH. It was... Did you? Fascinating. Yeah. I had, I wrote a case report on it. Nice. Um, But it wasn't a patient that I personally treated. I did like the literature review part. Nice. So what, what do you remember about that case? Well, it's, ence- it's a, it's a form of encephalitis, which is literally just brain inflammation of the brain inflammation of the brain i'm and i remember the patient being disoriented she was potentially hallucinating but -hmm. to be quite honest with you i don't remember much else (laughs) but if you have a case report you probably know all about it yeah so so what anti-nmda receptor encephalitis is usually it's in somebody who has a tumor Mm -hmm. um not i shouldn't say usually but like classically somebody could have a tumor that produces antibodies, which are part of your immune system. And these antibodies then react with the NMDA receptor in the brain. Mm. And it, it causes inflammation in the brain. And it causes really a lot of the things that we just talked about that PCP and ketamine can cause. It can cause psychosis, hearing voices, seeing things that aren't there, losing touch with reality. It can cause confusion, delirium which is kind of like a confusional state it can give you seizures and in some some people don't have a tumor that have nmda receptor encephalitis mm-hmm. actually i think typically the symptoms come before you find the cancer so a lot of times that's the presenting mm. symptom of somebody with with uh, some sort of tumor got it and there's also like other antibodies that your body can produce 
that mm. can cause the same kind of syndrome through you know related mechanisms and it seems like we're learning we're identifying more and more of those antibodies so they can treat more and more of these cases so you don't know you aren't always able to identify this case but we should probably do a whole episode on anti-nmda receptor encephalitis and the related illnesses because they're absolutely fascinating and they teach us a lot about biology and human behavior yeah definitely so why might ketamine work for depression so we talked about pcp its effects. We talked about the role of the NMDA receptor in Alzheimer's. What what makes us think that ketamine could work to help treat depression? So as we've talked about in previous episodes, I believe, mm-hmm. one of the things that antidepressants do is they lead to increased neuroplasticity, new pathways being grown in the brain. Mm-hmm. And we've talked in the past about why it's so important to couple antidepressant therapy with Therapy, talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And lifestyle changes Mm -hmm. and a myriad of other approaches to help treating depression. Because if you're making these new pathways in your brain and you're not training them properly, you might settle into your old ways. Right. And so the first theory of why ketamine works for depression is that it basically turns off cells that are preventing your brain from growing and changing and making new pathways. So the current state of knowledge suggests that the way ketamine helps to treat depression is by promoting neuroplasticity, much in the same way that traditional antidepressants do, but much quicker. So let's talk about some of the research that supports that. Blocking the NMDA receptor with ketamine, for example, increases a molecule called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And what does that do? That leads to the insertion of a new receptor into cells, which leads to neuroplasticity. This which new leads re- the, to growth, to the growth of nerve cells. Exactly. Right? So ketamine blocks the NMDA receptor and increases BDNF. And increasing BDNF, we know, helps to grow nerve cells. Mm-hmm. Also, but- there's research that shows that if you block that the BDNF, traditional antidepressants don't work either. So that's also the similar pathway to how traditional antidepressants work by promoting neuroplasticity along the same pathway. And mm-hmm. we also know that we were talking about memantine before for Alzheimer's. It does not increase BDNF. So even though, NM- even though memantine blocks the NMDA receptor, it doesn't increase BDNF, therefore theoretically not increasing neuroplasticity and oh. does nothing for depression. So that gives us a theoretical basis for believing that ketamine could help depression by increasing mm-hmm. neuroplasticity, much in the same way that other antidepressants do. Yeah. Right? So it's not necessarily that it's getting you high and then you feel mm-hmm. better. It's leading to a rapid proliferation of brain cells and new growth and everything else. Yes, a side effect of it is, and we'll talk, you know, you could have a dissociative experience. The dissociative experience and the other effects of ketamine are not what's helping your depression. What's helping your depression is new brain growth, so on and so forth, like we just discussed. Probably not, but... Probably not? Yeah, there's some evidence to the contrary we'll talk about in a minute. What? Yes. Are you blowing my mind right now? Are you telling me... So what... Do, wait, but... So, I'll just say it now then. Yeah. Because some of the research shows that having the dissociative experience is predictive for treatment response to ketamine for depression. Well, what I'm saying is the patients that 
got that high from the ketamine are the ones that responded, mm -hmm. the ones for whom it treated their depression. Now the author, so that that I got from um, one of the the best studies that I saw, you know, researching this was from Newport, uh, was the the lead author in 2015 in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Mm -hmm. They did a couple of meta analyses. They uh, examined the major trials um, up to that point for ketamine for depression. And they gave a lot of the theoretical basis as well. So it was a really well-written article that kind of helped me understand how a lot of this works. And one of the things they pointed out, like I just said, is that some of the, the studies that they looked at suggested that the dissociative experience was predictive of treatment response to ketamine. Mm. Another thing they smartly pointed out, which I wouldn't have thought of right away, is that it could be an issue with blinding in a sense that it could be that the people that have the dissociative experience realize they're getting the actual treatment drug or the mm -hmm. ketamine. And therefore, because they expect to improve, they will actually improve. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it can be a big difference. And I was hamming it up a little before we know in psychiatry that oftentimes a lot of hallucinogenics can be used for treatment of depression. There's right. a psilocybin clinic at NYU that has a lot of, that is right now, you know, mm -hmm. patients are, are ingesting psilocybin to induce a dissociative state because in and of itself that can be therapeutic. So yeah. Which mm -hmm. we should point out is still very, uh, yeah, it's still very theoretical. It's still very, uh, it's not something that you can go out and do. And it's not something that we would recommend you. Um, absolutely not yeah. something that you should go out and do on your own. So anyway, this study, they looked at a bunch of trials and they did perform a couple meta-analyses, which means they kind of combined the underlying data from the clinical trials into like one big study so they can increase something called power and give us a better picture of what the whole body of the literature is telling us. Exactly. So let's, let's look at some of the takeaways that they had and that I had for me in their study. Mm -hmm. Ketamine statistically significantly reduced the symptoms of depression in about one day. So one day, we're talking about 24 hours, Yeah, giving people ketamine. Most of the research was uh, intravenous ketamine, which is how it's traditionally used. They showed that there was a significant decrease in depression, actually even causing um, symptom remission within one day, meaning it treated the depression so effectively in one day that the patients probably wouldn't even meet the criteria for major depression after that one day. I think that's an important distinction to make because our most typical treatment for depression, which is antidepressants, it's not a magic pill. We tell patients that all the time. It's not going to take your symptoms away, but it's going to make them bearable. But right. I think what's astounding about what you're saying is that this does take it away. It right. might come back, as you'll discuss in a second, right. but for a time, you are symptom-free, potentially. Right. So then they looked at what happens, you know, seven days later, two weeks later, seven days after taking ketamine. And again, this is looking at hundreds of patients, you know, pooled together through a bunch of different studies. There was, a, there was still a statistically significant reduction in the symptoms of depression. The remission mm -hmm. was no longer statistically significant, meaning that by day seven, you know, most of the people had the depressive symptoms coming back, but still they were lower than they would have been if they hadn't received the ketamine. And then pretty much after that, the effects of the ketamine on the depression kind of wore off. Mm -hmm. You know, so some studies showed that there was still a statistically significant reduction in the symptoms at two weeks. 
Mm-hmm. So taken as a whole, basically what that's telling us is that ketamine can drastically reduce depression in one day. Mm-hmm. The symptoms are going to start to come back after about a week. And any longer than that, then the symptoms will basically fully come back. Which is why it's so important to couple this therapy with other therapies, because this right. is not going to be, you know, a right. panacea. It's it's going to be something that needs to be combined with traditional therapies. And it's going to maybe see you through mm-hmm. your roughest times and help right. you get through that, help you get back on your feet so that you can then at least be content enough to go through with your therapy and go through with the other therapies that you're exploring. But if you really, if, if say you're so depressed that you can't even make it to your therapy or you're not engaged in your therapy, then maybe this can get you there. Am I, right. am I thinking about it correctly? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think so. Because, I mean, wh- what are you going to do? Take ketamine every day? You know, exactly. we already yeah. talked about it before. If you take ketamine every day, mm-hmm. possibly even if you take it every week, you could end up with a syndrome like schizophrenia. Exactly. You, you could get end up with, you know, neurotoxicity. You could end up with neurological damage. You mm. know what I mean? And like with like we were talking about before, this is not something that you can do in the comfort of your own home. You have to Absolutely do this not. in this in a doctor's office. You have to be monitored for two hours. In fact, th- this is not the kind of drug that you can go to the pharmacy, even if your doctor prescribes to you and get. The only way that you're going to get esketamine is if your doctor agrees to administer it to you, and then the doctor has it. You self-administer it. In other words, you're the one spraying it in your nose. But after that, the doctor is going to take it from you because you, you're you not going to take that home with you. And the only way that the doctor can give it to you is if they're enrolled in what's called risk evaluation and mitigation strategy trial. And the specific name of the trial, which would be specific to the way that this drug is going to be marketed in the United States, is the Spravato-REMS, because Spravato is the name of the drug that's FDA-approved. Right, that's uh, the brand name. Exactly. Right. And this is, you know, this isn't like some new company coming in here and getting an FDA approval for a drug. This is Johnson & Johnson. They They have the patent, and they are going, they're the company that's going to be marketing Spravato. Let's talk about uh, another interesting area of the research that the Newport paper uh, pointed out, mm-hmm. which was uh, ketamine in conjunction with ECT. Interesting. So I never thought about it this way before, but it makes a lot of sense to use ketamine with ECT because ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. So you can use it before you administer. So, so like you were saying before, the electroconvulsive therapy is administered usually in a hospital or at least some kind of like surgical center setting, mm-hmm. like an operating room. Yep. Um, and the patient is given anesthetics or at least uh, medications to... What do they actually give now that I think about it? At our own institution, we do mm-hmm. give ketamine along with along with ECT, although the ketamine is a supplemental injection and not the primary injection to induce anesthesia. Usually it's propofol along with like uh, succinylcholine or something else to paralyze you. Yeah. So you would think like this is like the perfect scenario, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, you're, you're already going to be... Um, giving them something, giving them an anesthetic, why not give ketamine, which shows promise? Mm-hmm. Well, here's what the, the research showed when looked at as a whole. Yes, using ketamine had a treatment response in these patients that were getting ECT, but it had no improvement compared to the ECT alone at the end of the course of the ECT. Interesting. So it wasn't any better than just giving ECT. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of an endorsement for ECT, you know? Yeah, I mean... 
you know, ECT has this horrible stigma about it. We should probably do a whole episode about the history of ECT and right, its current use. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, the stigma and the controversy around it. But ECT is the only procedure in medicine with no absolute contraindications because it works so well and it right. saves lives. And it doesn't matter if you're pregnant or, or you have a seizure disorder. You can get ECT. Yeah. My spiel about ECT is that it works better than our typical drugs and it has fewer side effects. Definitely. You know, so it's not something to be afraid of. You know, it's something that you should talk to your doctor about if they think it might be a good idea for you. Exactly. A couple other interesting takes. This paper didn't just look at ketamine. It looked at other NMDA antagonists and similar molecules Mm -hmm. uh, for the treatment of depression. It found there were a couple other promising molecules based on the research, including D-cycloserine and repastinel which modulate NMDA, but aren't NMDA receptor blockers. They looked at like three other NMDA receptor blockers, and none of them worked uh, for depression, including, like we said before, memantine. That's interesting. Right. And they pointed out, like the other paper said, the difference between memantine and um, ketamine is that memantine doesn't increase BDNF, and it also doesn't activate another pathway called mTOR, which is associated with neuroplasticity. But they made another important uh, differentiation between memantine and ketamine. So another major difference between ketamine and other NMDA receptor blockers like memantine is that ketamine is the only one that can stop the depolarization of the NMDA receptor neurons in the presence of magnesium. So what does that mean? So magnesium is an element that's very abundant in our bodies, and it has usually an inhibitory effect on uh, neurons, so it kind Mm -hmm. of quiets down cell membranes. Mm -hmm. Um, And ketamine is able to overcome the presence of magnesium to block the NMDA receptors. Interesting, okay. Whereas memantine and the other NMDA receptor blockers, when you add magnesium into the mix, they basically don't work. They don't stop the depolarization of the cells. Okay, interesting. So that's another difference in the mechanism of action of ketamine as opposed to other NMDA receptor blockers. Okay. I'm educated now. I'm a doctor. You are, you are. (laughs) Indeed. So, and by the way, I'll say this now, I meant to say it before, uh, congratulations. James is now the recipient of the Golden Apple Award. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's really a major accomplishment. You know, it's an award um, given by medical students to excellent teachers. And they identified James, one of the best residents at teaching medical students. I'm really proud. I'm really proud of it. I don't. And the thing is, I don't know. I don't know that much. <laughs> but but apparently, apparently you do, or at least you're good at uh, tricking medical students into thinking you know a lot. And I think I think a big part of teaching and learning and medicine, and I hope that's something that we're doing a little bit through this podcast, is having a conversation. It's not right. about delivering facts. It's not about, you know, in a dry way, just saying this is how it works. It's about having a conversation. It's about building off of each other. It's about building a dialogue. And I don't know, maybe I do that, but I certainly don't know. A whole lot about esketamine, but I'm neither learning. Do I. Yeah, neither do <laughs> I. But uh, in doing this podcast, we're we're learning and we're finding yeah, out, which is really exactly. what it's all about yeah. for everybody. Yeah. So sure. I think one of the things that we definitely need to talk about when we talk about ketamine is that ketamine is a drug of abuse. Right. And I think that if we don't mention that, we don't talk about how it's used, I think we're kind of doing a disservice to our audience. Ketamine 
is used medically and it's abused uh, every day. So how is it abused? You might have heard it referred to as special K or vitamin K. It goes along with everything that we've been talking about. It's a potent dissociative anesthetic, meaning that it provides feelings of detachment and that's how it's used. It comes in several forms when it's when it's abused. It comes in a white powder. It comes in liquid. It comes in pills. Um, it can cause you to hallucinate. It can cause you to have reduced feelings of physical sensations and even temporary paralysis, which is why, unfortunately, it is used as a date rape drug. What are some of the dangers of ketamine? So some of the some of the dangers are so if you mix ketamine with other depressants like alcohol. God forbid heroin, you're intensifying the danger of respiratory depression. Ketamine in and of itself actually has a relatively low potential to cause respiratory depression, basically make you stop breathing. But if you combine it with other things, that potential skyrockets. And it usually is used recreationally in conjunction with other things. So that right. is certainly a concern there. And if you are temporarily paralyzed by the drug, which can happen, you might choke, you might die from aspiration, you might stop breathing. You know, there's there's a million things it can it can do. Right. It also uh, can cause uh, increases in blood pressure that could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right. We said it doesn't lower blood pressure, but it also on the other hand, can increase your blood pressure dangerously. Exactly. And, you know, just even even simpler effects it can have, which are still unpleasant. It can cause nausea, vomiting. Mm-hmm. It can cause mood swings. It can cause impairment in your ability to learn or remember. Um, so it does a lot. And it's definitely not something you want to be messing around with. It can even cause, if you're abusing it long term, so if someone's using ketamine with some frequency over the course of years, it's actually known to cause damage to the bladder and urinary tract. And it's right. a, there's actually a syndrome called ketamine bladder syndrome. It hmm. triggers decreased control of the bladder and it can cause incontinence. Wow. Uh, so there, you know, it's not, it doesn't go without its, uh, its risks. Right. Not something I want to experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and I also wanted to say that, you know, if you yourself are suffering from addiction to ketamine. I have seen a few patients who've suffered with this. The few patients that I have seen who use ketamine, they don't even think that it's something they can get treated for. With regards to ketamine's use as a drug of abuse, it's it's not as common as heroin or other things, but this is something that you can get treated for. We know how to treat it. We know how to help. There are inpatient and outpatient options, so you should definitely seek help if you're struggling. Excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah. So there's another major drawback to ketamine. Mm-hmm. or especially esketamine in this case, which is that it's expensive. Oh, yeah. The estimates are saying that this esketamine nasal spray for the first month is going to cost somewhere around $6,000. Now, it's important to note that this is before rebates and subsidies and all sorts of things. And insurance. We don't know yeah, exactly. what insurance is going to cover, like to what extent they're going to pay. Yeah. This is still an astronomical price, and it probably in some ways unjustifiable however that's not the price that you will be paying um right. it's it's in the pharmaceutical company's best interests to get this drug out to as many people as possible so at least initially it will probably be fairly uh attainable we, that remains to be seen you know because mm. we're talking about six thousand dollars in the first month three thousand every month thereafter you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars mm. so we'll see we'll see what happens we'll see what kind of incentives the pharmaceutical companies offer we'll see to what extent the uh, insurance companies feel like they should it'll be in the best interest of the public to pay but when you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars even if you have to pay just a little percentage of that it's going to be unattainable for a lot of people definitely i think it's um 
I think the way that the pharmaceutical companies are thinking about it is as an alternative to ECT, TMS, maybe even inpatient admission. Right. So That's true. That's a great point. If the pharmaceutical companies are seeing this as an alternative to ECT, which is essentially a surgery, or an inpatient stay, you know, those things cost tens of thousands of dollars on their own. Right. So the pharmaceutical company and by extension, the insurance company may actually see this as a cost saving measure. Right. Because if you're if you have depression that badly and you're heading down the road that you may need an inpatient stay or you may need ECT, the insurance company is probably going to be more than happy to pay for this to prevent you from needing inpatient treatment. Right. As long as it works, as long as everything pans out the way they want it to. So right. we'll see what happens. Yeah. I'll I'll say that there's I've read some uh opinions of people of physicians being concerned, is this the next opioid epidemic? Mm. In a sense that you know, the pharmaceutical industry and physicians and healthcare providers helped create the current opioid epidemic by giving the green light to using opioid medications much more than we should have been using. And there's some concern that, you know, we might be going down that path again. So it's something yeah. to, to definitely weigh against, you know. It's terrifying. I do hope as of now, like we've discussed, the only way that you can obtain this is by coming into a doctor's office being monitored as you administer it to yourself and then being monitored for two hours afterwards. I do hope that that continues to be the way that it is distributed because I think if that's the way it is, it's going to be very hard for people to abuse right, it. For, for diversion as well, you yeah. know, to get into the wrong hands. But when it reaches the point where this is just something that you can pick up at CVS, then yeah, that's kind of scary. Right, we'll yeah. see. We'll see we how it pans see. out. So let's summarize everything we talked about so far. Let's do it. What are our top five things to know about ketamine? The first thing to know about ketamine, it is it is not a first-line treatment. It only can be used after you've tried something else like an antidepressant or two, and they haven't worked. And then you're saying, what can I do? Ketamine might be an option. And in that case, it can only be used in addition to an antidepressant. Exactly. exactly. So you have, to, you have to already fail the traditional therapy and it's only in conjunction with the traditional therapy. You're not taking ketamine on its own. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. The second thing to know is that should ketamine, as ketamine be right for you, it's not going to be the type of thing where your doctor is going to prescribe it and you're going to go to CVS and you're going to get it. This is still in a very early phase of being studied. And the only way that you're that anyone's going to receive ketamine is in a doctor's office under supervision by the doctor. You're going to have to you're going to have to stay there for 2 hours and after that you're not going to be able to drive or operate heavy machinery or work for the rest of the day. Number 3, ketamine is dangerous. It has a lot of potential side effects. Dangerous increases in blood pressure, increases in intracranial pressure, respiratory depression, dissociation, hallucination, delusions, suicidal behavior. We don't even know what the long-term side effects are. It's not something to mess around with. Definitely. The fourth thing to know is that ketamine is a drug of abuse, like we discussed. You know, it's um, it's abused recreationally, and when combined with other substances, it can be extremely dangerous and uh, can even potentially lead to death from either you're stopping breathing or choking or aspiration. So it's not something that you'd play around with. And finally, number five is ketamine should be seen as another tool in our armamentarium. It has yeah. the potential to rapidly treat depression, but not on its own. You know, it can help bridge the gap until the traditional and much safer SSRIs, for example, kick in and start to treat depression. Not to mention 
like we talked about before, therapy, lifestyle changes, diet, exercise. This isn't in and of itself the cure for depression, but it should be considered another tool in the toolbox. There's no golden goose in medicine. There's no cure-all in medicine. And when someone tries to sell you something that sounds like a cure-all, you should be extremely skeptical because the more things that something works for, the less likely it is to actually work for anything. So if, uh, you know, you were listening to this episode, enjoying yourself, having the time of your life, but you were maybe a little somewhat saddened because maybe some of the symptoms we discussed kind of reminded you of, of your situation and what you're going through. We always like to tell people that it's so important to reach out and get help if you're struggling with depression, with anxiety, with anything that prevents you from living your best life, it's important to get hooked up with a therapist, with a psychiatrist. You can do that through your health insurer's website. You can do that through a simple Google search. Don't be afraid to reach out and get help. All right, guys, thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review. It really helps. You can check us out on Facebook, on Instagram. So until next time, peace. Adios. Adios.